0: Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the old-fashioned radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. This month, our guest is Kevin Driscoll of the University of Virginia author most recently of The Modem World, A Prehistory of Social Media. Together we'll be exploring the question of what the earliest social media was like. There are lots of anxieties today about social media networks. Did did they have to end up as they did? Was there another way they could have developed? In particular, people are worried about uh, whether social media is or has to be addictive or polarizing or advertising-funded? Did it always surveil? Are there lessons in the past that we could use to make social media better today and in the future? This is a kind of question that I ask myself a lot. I'm the kind of person who likes using uh, old tools sometimes. Uh, A favorite of mine is is, uh, the program I write in the most, Emacs, uh, which was first developed in the 1970s A period when a lot of the systems we'll be talking about were developed as well. In a lot of ways, it's like a modern word processor. You move around the screen on a cursor and type words in and things like that. But it's also different in a lot of ways. It's, it's developed by a community rather than a company. Um, it's infinitely customizable almost. It's in many ways, simple and low distraction. At least when you're looking at the screen, there aren't all kinds of buttons and pop-ups uh, uh, trying to capture your attention. It's a constant reminder of how things might've been done differently. Our guest today, Kevin Driscoll, has lots more examples like this. I've learned a ton from his writing on social media, uh, much of it from before we were both born. He's a professor of media studies at the University of Virginia, And his most recent book, again, is The Modem World, A Prehistory of Social Media, a really fantastic exploration of the age of bulletin board systems uh, that was published this year by Yale University Press. His previous book uh, that we also speak about is A History of Minitel, the French government's pre-internet network. First, let's paint a picture of what it was like to be online before the internet How did it happen? Why did people do it? Um, What's the difference from what people might experience today, you know, logging into an app on their phones? It's a great question because before the internet, is is it a little tricky one?
1: Since there have been networks called the internet for a long time, but the internet that we think of when we open up our smartphone is of a relatively recent origin. It's something that came about through a process of Privatization, commercialization, and convergence of many different networks during the nineteen nineties. So, if I if I could tweak your question, it's like, what did it mean to go online before then, like before the widespread commercial internet of the dot com boom
0: and the click point and click web browser? Right, because a lot of the systems that you're talking about were, uh, you know, hobbyists uh, finding each other in different kinds of online spaces. Well. What became the internet was like a government and research program that most people didn't have access to. Absolutely. Yeah. People have been building computer networks for the
1: purposes of chatting with one another and creating community since the late 1970s. And when they were doing that, sometimes their networks connected to one another in a way that we would think of as a network of networks, but it wasn't the internet as it would be defined by engineers or standards-making bodies or something like that. And the people who built those kinds of networks were participating in a long tradition of amateur telecommunications, that they had been building on practices that connected them to underground comics and subculture publishing, amateur radio operators, CB radios on the highway, things like that. And so some of the early systems borrowed directly from techniques and technologies from those earlier periods. So a lot of the early systems that we might see that look like online communities or proto internets or something like that were created by people who were active members of local community computer clubs who were learning to tinker with these new machines that had only recently been become available to home users, if you will. Although those home users had to be handy with soldering irons and learn to program right away. There was not like an application that they could run on their machine, certainly not many uh, computer games or spreadsheet software, things like that. And one reason to get online or to build these spaces to get online was to talk to other people who had this pretty niche interest of tinkering with computers and learning to make things with uh, microelectronics. So you got online to ask questions and find answers. So the way I think about it a lot is by the late 1970s, there's computer clubs all over North America that meet once a month, maybe. They often have a newsletter, maybe a monthly newsletter that goes around. And so if you are stuck with a problem with your computer, you've got to wait till that next issue of the newsletter or the meeting to get there. And a lot of the people who built early online systems talked about being in touch in between all those meetings, extending the meeting into something of an ongoing dialogue. So they were quite literally taking their community bulletin board of the kind that you might find in the, like the foyer of the public library with cork and pins, and then computerizing it. So most of the networks that I've been writing about are called dial-up bulletin board systems, they are computer-based bulletin boards for people to post notices to one another, to write answers back and forth, share tips and, and tricks and information. And the kind of thing that we have to get our minds wrapped around is initially there was a real need for this kind of mutual support and sharing of expertise because we didn't have large online databases of information and we certainly didn't have search engines that could go across them so you depended on your relationship to others to even be able to have this amateur or hobby
0: kind of interest in computers so those those are early days and so you call this the the modem world people are you know modems we think of today, if we even think about them, are kind of sitting in the background somewhere, quietly doing their thing, um, and, and we barely notice. Um, but this was a time when the modem was something you noticed. You hear the beep, boop, boop, boop. You know, you hear the, the, the dial tones. Uh, you, you are calling into not just the internet, but actually a, you know, a, a local service. Uh, tell us a bit about the people who are running these places where people are gathering. Let me say a word about the modem, because
1: that will actually tell us a little bit about these folks. Um, Most computers sold prior to the mid-1990s didn't have any capability for connecting to one another or connecting to networks. They weren't generally sold as communication machines. They were sold as kind of like a software player, like a device for running programs, more in the tradition of information processing. But a small number, smaller number of people who bought those machines saw them as potential devices for communication. And the key difference was that they were the people who bought modems, which was an optional kind of expensive add-on to your already expensive home computer. And it does one job, which is that it translates streams of digital information, like ones and zeros, into some other form. Now the modem that we think about it in many of our homes is connected to a cable television network. And so it's just gonna translate the data coming out of our computer into a form that can go over that network. But a dial-up modem of the kind that people think of when they think of modems is one for connecting to the telephone network. And it has a really special quality, which is that it turns data into music because it has to turn the data into some form that can fit into the audible range of human beings because they were taking advantage of the telephone network, which was made to carry our voices. That's why you can hear the sounds of data being transmitted over these dial-up networks. So by the start of the 1980s, almost everybody in, the, in North America in the US and Canada has access to telephone, the telephone calling and receiving calls. They have a telephone number. They kind of know how to use it. It's so everyday that you don't think about it. But through the beginning process of breaking up the national monopolies, it becomes possible to connect other things to that network. And one of the things we connected was computers. So when you say like you're not really dialing into the internet, it's because generally speaking, it would be one person's computer dialing one other person's computer directly. And these smaller scale dial-up bulletin board systems were run out of the homes of volunteers and enthusiasts by and large. So it's almost like being invited into someone's home to to borrow some time on their computer. Generally, only one person at a time could be using the machine because the machine would be wholly occupied with serving that incoming caller. So the routine of participating in these networks is really different than the kind of all the time scrolling real time, 24 seven broadband internet of today. It's more of a round robin conversation where like one at a time users drop in, they read the most recent messages, post their replies and then hang up so that the line's free for the next person to get
0: on. And one of the differences, especially uh, with the phone system as it was then was that uh, it it was local. It would cost more to, uh, uh, to, to dial in to someplace far away. So today you have people all over the world dialing into TikTok, so to speak, right? That would have been expensive at that time. So people were forced to develop these communities on a geographically local basis.
1: Yeah, and the localism is reflected in all kinds of structures that go into it, some of which are highly aesthetic. So you had places around the country where people would really intensely identify with their area code. So they'd be like, We're, we are the 434 crew and like the 434 rules in all these different ways and really strongly think about their area code in part because they hardly ever connected to a bulletin board that was outside of their local area code. And it's it's kind of easy to forget now, but it was a relatively recent development in the early 1980s to be able to place a long distance call without speaking to a human, uh, human operator first. So what that meant is there is no indication of how much it's going to cost and the rate for long distance dialing was pretty variable. So calling the next state over costs less than calling across the country. And so most people were not in the habit of placing long distance calls at all. An important part of kind of coming up through this proto internet era was almost everybody had a story of like the bad phone bill. The time that they ventured out from their local calling area and then got dinged with what, you know. Three-digit phone bill at the end of the
0: month. One thing I noticed in, in your book, there was a chart of some of the the biggest bulletin board services at a certain time, and I was really proud to notice, like um, my uh, home area code that I grew up in was uh, uh, was was the home of uh, a, a BBS specifically for um, LGBTQ communities. Um, can you say a bit about the kinds of communities that flourished here, the kinds of people attracted? To these spaces, Uh, you talked a bit about the kind of computer hobbyists, but you know who else showed up for this?
1: Yeah. So, if the computer hobbyists start building the networks in the nineteen late nineteen seventies, one thing about that community is they had a really strong norm of documenting and sharing their successes. So, the very first uh, bulletin board system to use that metaphor, CBBS in uh, suburban Chicago, the people who ran it announced it in. Uh, Byte magazine, the most widely read computer magazine of the time, and then followed up several months later with a report on how it was going and detailed instructions on like what you needed to buy, what software you needed to write yourself to get it to work and what little tricks that they had. And they included their home phone numbers to say, if you're trying to do this, we'll help you. And Within a few years, a lot of clubs had systems running. But because of that norm of documenting what they'd done. By the mid-1980s, when the cost of computers had started to fall, they became more accessible both socially and economically, other groups of people who were otherwise excluded from media systems or had another need to build their own independent community media spaces could take up that software, that documentation, those techniques, and deploy it for their own purposes. So connection for connection's sake starts to give way to connections for other purposes. So after school programs, churches, and as you mentioned, queer people and queer communities throughout North America were huge early adopters and creators of these community-based networks. And It's not hard to speculate about why a person who lived in a place where they could not fully express their sexual identity would Want to create these kinds of spaces, but it's really important to emphasize how creative and how active and lively those early uh, LGBTQ networks could be.
0: And so, what what happened to this moment? Where's kind of the the bookend where the 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 moment of the of the modem world passes? What what happened to this world that you've been documenting?
1: Yeah, these worlds never pass in a moment. You know, in ref- in retrospect, sometimes it seems that way. But what's so cool about looking at this from the from the point of view of people who don't know the future that we occupy now is that they could see a range of different possible futures and they didn't see the one that we exist in necessarily. So standing from the point of view of, say, 1991 or 1992, if you're active on bulletin boards and you're listening to something like... Um, the presidential debates, or you're listening to the State of the Union address in 1993, you're hearing talk about information superhighways and the cyberspace. And then soon this is uh, reflected in like television and film and Hollywood has embraced the notion of like virtual reality and things like that. From a BBS user or operator point of view, you are standing on the precipice like you're the vanguard. You've been doing this for 10 or 15 years already. And many of those people felt like They are some of the only ones around who know what's going on. And I think many of them were ready to move forward to try their hand at maybe commercializing something that had been a hobby for some period of time or building out some new area of industry or really being the ones who would chaperone the arrival of this information superhighway. In practice, it's a little more complicated. In one part, it's because people who were in that standard kind of internet sphere, the Researchers at large tech firms or big uh, universities or military contractors, they were not generally participating in the amateur BBS world. And so while they may have been aware that there was something else going on, they didn't include it in their reports or recommendations or formal kinds of processes. And so when we look at documentation of um, hearings or events about the process of building what would become the commercial internet There isn't really anybody at the table who speaks for the millions of people who've built these many thousands of networks across the globe at this period of time. So the conversations are structurally separate from each other. So there is that exclusion that happens. And it's not necessarily like an aggressive form of exclusion. It's more like neglect or ignorance. But what does happen that's really striking is that as the edges of the internet begin to open up. And the government starts to hand over more and more of the infrastructure to private industry, it creates the possibility to transform those local dial up communities into gateways to this new internet, into what would eventually be called internet service providers. And by some accounts, the very term internet service provider originated with the BBS users who were trying to kind of shed any sense that. BBSs might have been retrograde or like something from the 80s, they needed a new name for themselves. So some large number, which is very hard to estimate from the mid 90s of big BBSs kind of vanished and then became ISPs. And one reason we know that is because if you looked at advertisements from like 93 or so for those boards and you looked at the number you used to dial in it's the same number for big isps serving the same geographic area a couple years later so we have some interesting anecdotal evidence and many of those people did become informal kinds of chaperones of like introducing friends family and neighbors to what the internet was going to be all about so when they got there and they started to explore the web they started to rebuild some of the things that they had already built in their bulletin board system spaces. And that's why a lot of forums and other kinds of online community software uses the terminology from bulletin board systems, even like the software will be called PHP BB or something like that.
0: To Say a bit more about that, about the traces of this, of this period that are still in our online lives today you know talk to sometimes you can find something that calls itself an internet service provider sometimes you can find a you know an online bulletin board that still uses that that kind of language um, what other traces do you notice um, having done this this historical research in like you know scrolling through uh, social media today
1: yeah it's a great question because it reflects the kind of unequal distribution of innovation across the globe because bulletin board and, and BBS really fell out of use in the English language circles of, the, of North America. But BBS has continued to be really important features of the online world well into the late 1990s and early 2000s in East Asia and in Eastern Europe and many and other places where you know there was less government involvement perhaps in building commercial networks and users might have ha- found more utility in those systems so there is this like other world of bbs's that's invisible if we only have this like narrow north american view um but that being said many of the habits of being online carried over and it's not that they were solely in the bbs space because things like flame wars, or trolling, or harassment, or even writing an FAQ file. Those things happened in many different places simultaneously. So a very important messaging network uh, for the on the university side is Usenet. And Usenet runs in many ways in parallel to bulletin board systems, providing very similar services, like places to go and talk about techie stuff, but also your favorite sports team, or movies you watched, and food you like to cook, things like that. And so Folks there are experiencing many of the same things as people on the dial-up bulletin board side, but the difference is that they operate under really different economic conditions. So whereas the costs of running the Usenet service were often kind of like folded into broader budgets for big departments or things like that, people on the, side of, on the amateur side felt the cost of being online very acutely i mean dialing long distance is one example just keeping your hard drive spinning all day and all night was another cost and it had to there had to be more open discussion of what it takes to build this kind of online space so when you hear people now talking about the costs of being online or lamenting the kind of pre- prevalence of surveillance and t- uh, acquisition of personal data and things like that, in many ways, that's a continu- that there's continuity to discussions of how are we going to pay the bills that had been happening in the early 1980s? Are we paying monthly fees? Are we paying per minute? Are we going to show ads to people? Things like that. One of the striking differences is that there was very low tolerance for advertising in these dial-up networks because by and large, people were paying per minute. And if they weren't paying per minute, they would have seen it as like an unwelcome waste of their time. You know, they, if they can only be online for an hour today, they don't want to spend 10 minutes downloading an ad. They want to use it to be posting messages and reading and things like that. So we actually don't see a lot of advertising. That advertising is not the first business model anybody tried. We'll put it that way <laughs> in the in that period.
0: Well, we'll talk a, uh, a bit more about those that kind of alternative um uh, story kind of lodged in the past uh, when we come back. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Kevin Driscoll about the question of what the earliest social media was like. Kevin, we've been talking about BBSs and these early dial-up networks, um, largely in North America. It's been the context that we've been looking at. I want to zoom over to the, the topic of your previous book, the Minitel system in France. Um, can you introduce that to us as another story about the internet's prehistory and and what might have have um, you know been a, a kind of different model for what these networks could look like. Absolutely.
1: So if before we were talking about enthusiasts around North America starting to solder together computers and hook them up to their phone lines, there was a really different conversation happening in France at that same period, and. One reason is that whereas the US had a relatively robust telephone network and an infrastructure for maintaining it, in France, there was a fear that they were falling behind their neighbors in Europe and beyond in terms of their telecommunications capacity. So there was a real political will to like upgrade the telephone network all at one time. And that created a huge horizon for possibility of experimentation. And one of those uh, efforts was to not only modernize the telephone apparatus, but also create a kind of open digital network with a that could provide interactive services. So the main metaphor of the time would be something like a hybrid of television and telephone, an interactive TV of a kind. And through some process of experimentation, the result was Minitel. And in around 1983, consumers in France who were subscribed to the national telephone system could go to the post office and come home with a free Minitel terminal. And it looked like a little box made of plastic with an eight-inch video screen and a little fold-out keyboard. And then the keyboard had arrow keys and letters and numbers on it. And in the and it came with a brochure, and the brochure was how to use it, and it was very simple. You would plug your telephone into the Minitel terminal and then plug the Minitel terminal into the wall. And by and large, you used your phone like you always did. But if you wanted to get online, you called a special number and you called it with your hand on the regular telephone and listened for a tone. And when you heard the tone in your ear, you could press a button on the terminal and put your telephone handset down and then pictures would start to appear on the screen. And it's like pretty blocky, we might think of it as like old video game graphics, but it's really colorful and bright and interactive. Things can be animated in Flash, and initially, most people used it for public services. And a lot of the sales pitch for why we would have, why they would have that, was to replace. The telephone book or other government um, services that could be offered through this system. So like students registering for university classes or getting their grades, which is a very memorable part of Minitel use for a certain (laughs) generation of French people, Uh, buying tickets on the train. These are all kinds of public services that could be administered through this new Uh, home interface. So a key piece of the Minitel is the economic part. We talked about this ambiguity of how to pay for things on the web and on the internet. Well, Minitel had a payment system built in and because it was connected to your home telephone network, any activities that you carried out online could be added to your phone bill. So at the end of the month, you'd have like a line on your phone bill for your online activities. What was different about what France did from even other European countries who experimented with this kind of public data network is that they opened it up to third parties to build their own services. So that could be existing media industries. So almost every major newspaper and magazine built an online component to what they were doing, or it could be totally new services. So what we would think of as like startups, even in the present, Uh, and lots of young people who are in university dropped out to try to build a service of their own. This is dramatized in a recent uh, television show that's great, that's uh, France-made, called trans Monique, which is about a group of young people who start an adults-only site on Minitel in the 80s. You can see clips of that online if you want to. Um, But what it meant was that by the late 1980s, virtually everybody in France had gone online, even if it was just to look up a phone number or to pay a bill or something like that. Almost everybody had some firsthand experience of getting online and tinkering. And some number of those people were drawn deeper to think about how this could be used for other purposes. So almost all of the standard menu of services we've come to expect, like um, food delivery, grocery delivery, uh, ordering part replacement parts for your car, all these kinds of everyday commercial activities, sort of the electronic catalog shopping mall sort of thing, was a, were available in France by the late 1980s, buying movie tickets, things like that. But on top of that, there was a groundswell of interest in online communities. And whereas in the US, we see the bulletin board as the dominant metaphor, that is like the routine posting messages and coming and going, the... In France, they look more like real-time chat rooms. And that's because their, their platform is much more sophisticated and involves what's known as packet switching. So many different people can be connected at the same time. In uh, Minitel magazine, there's this really great first issue of this magazine for Minitel enthusiasts that says it's going to be a return of the masquerade ball because everybody has a pseudonym and they go online and they flirt with each other. And it's, a, it's associated as something that young adults do. So there's lots of like pop songs about meeting people online and then like going and having a tryst in real life and things like that. And it just totally diffused into everyday popular culture in a way that made it unremarkable to people who lived there. And in, as, as a result, many people outside of France were not even aware that this was happening. And it created all these interesting things in the mid-1990s as commercial internet service diffused into France about how it was going to play next to this publicly sponsored option. And one of the most memorable moments of that period of transition was an administrator for Benatel saying, yeah, this internet thing, the web, it's going to fail because there's no way to pay people reliably on there. And like, how could this survive like how could this be sustainable without that and so that obvious is, you know there was a lot of jokes about that person's like lack of foresight at the time although now I think there's some wisdom there that kind of feeds into some of the problems that we might see with the internet we inhabit
0: today right I mean it's such a Drastic alternative in some respects, and and noticed at the time too. From like, for instance, the the famous essay on the early '90s, the Californian ideology, which was observing the the rise of the Silicon Valley economy. You know, and this and this this call that was already starting to be evident there of you know hand your networks over to the big companies. You know, capitalism will take care of it for you, and and the authors present. Minitel as an example of an alternative imagination of saying, um, "No, we should take care of that infrastructure on a public basis." Maybe, um, you know, it, it, the way you described it, it sounds almost like an Apple App Store, um, except run by the government. Maybe good, maybe bad, uh, but uh, but nevertheless, it at least kind of makes the uh, uh, presents a different kind of economy and, and creates a kind of commons in, in the midst of that. Um, you know, I'm curious again about that kind of end story, how you understand, you know, why didn't Minitel, the Minitel model win? Um, why isn't that the kind of approach that we end up um, seeing um, all over the world? And, and uh, you know, what is lost uh, when we, you know, because of how things have panned out? That was a big question
1: going into that project, because among the people we spoke with in the US who were familiar with Minitel most saw it as a a story of competition, like internet versus Minitel. Internet wins, Minitel loses. When in fact, it's much more complicated than that because Minitel stayed online until 2012, and it and it only um, when it shut down. There's lots of interesting, like stories in the popular press in France where reporters would go and find out like who's still using Minitel, and there were lots of use cases for which Minitel was. The preferred medium. It was reliable. It had been used for a long time. It was integrated into business processes or other kinds of institutional mechanisms, and so people preferred to stick with it. And in in some ways, there is never a like we. It's we're tempted to imagine the internet or technology in general as like a parade of successes that, that knock the next one out. Like MySpace defeats Friendster, and then. Facebook defeats MySpace when, of course, it's like... The
0: line of progress, right? We, we want that story.
1: Yeah. Like a very popular gay men's service on Minitel is Tonsus Keens' Mech, which is like dudes. And at the time of the availability of the web, they built out alternative interfaces so you could get at it through your web browser on your PC, or you could get at it through your traditional Minitel terminal or you could get a free Minitel emulation program to run on your PC and go through that, <laughs> go through your internet connection over a Minitel gateway and back around. So these things kind of all exist together. And what's notable about the internet of the late 1990s is that all these simultaneous experiments in building systems under different kinds of political economic conditions were merged through this like imperfect process of building gateways. And I think there's something special, like rhetorically, about the word internet that once you connect to it, you become the internet. And it makes it seem like the prior networks went away rather than becoming like members in this broader network of networks. So I'm always trying to remind myself of the internet as multiple. It's an internet of internets of internets, like this constantly changing dynamic assemblage, if you will, of communication systems. And so you can see that even biographically in the Minitel story, like a notorious provider of adult services on Minitel in the 80s, Xavier Niel, it later became a provider of uh, internet services and mobile phones, who totally challenged the like prevailing um, mobile phone economy in France. So of the public figures who represent that early Minitel period, some of them are not like Public bureaucrats working for the state to build state telecommunications telecommunication, infrastructure—they're like young rascals who are messing around on the edges and doing things that are like a little bit off-color and upsetting the apple cart kinds of things. So even that silicon, that notion of Silicon Valley being like the world's technology rogues, doesn't really hold hold true. There's a more complicated, like transnational story going on. I should mention also my co-author, Julian Maland, asks this question of why is there no Minitel in the US and finds that actually there was a lot of excitement for building a Minitel in the US. Their Byte magazine, who I mentioned before, in 1983 ran a big special issue on video tech, which is the like generic technology of Minitel. And they were praising, there was like all this imagery of how awesome the Minitel is. And there's a similar system growing in Canada called Teledon and it's like around the corner in the US and that year the Radio Shack featured a Minitel compatible terminal in their catalog and a year later it's gone and there's lots of reasons why like structural political cultural geographic we're just farther apart you know the way the the building the possibility of building a nationwide digital network was pretty challenging on just like a topographical nature thinking about like virginia to co- <laughs> to um colorado you can imagine some challenges there so yeah i think there is like this ongoing question of why would something work in one place and not the other but then it's also about time like you make this comparison to the app store i think it makes a lot of sense the app store is a privatized minitel and it if it's working it's not hard to imagine a future platform that offers more uh accountability to the public
0: it's it's striking in the in among these like what does the system include in its basic structure and what doesn't it right the idea for instance that you would have um an economy like minitel's built into access from the beginning right and so there's a way to pay for things so again advertising might not be so um so appealing the um uh, the context of the of the BBS is you have this um, rationale for maybe paying the person who is hosting the BBS a you know small monthly fee or something like that, um, because they're holding, you know, maintaining it in their in their house. Um, and and it, it makes it all the more striking that when the Internet gets uh, more privatized, more made more available, it could have been run like a Minitel, you know, the government could have said, "Okay, we built this thing. Now we get to control it and we're going to run it in this way in the United States. Um, But they decide instead to kind of remove to to not build in that economic layer. And and as a result, it kind of seeds that um, and and forces the, you know, the tech economy to to figure out what that could mean, um, how to build businesses on a system that doesn't have built in economics. Um, and and advertising becomes in in many respects to answer that question. So I'm curious too, uh, you know, to ask a bit more about, you know, the traces. Um, do you see like in in the kind of chatter that you've examined in both of these systems, um, kind of seeds of some of the things that people are especially anxious about social media uh, uh, today? You know, the the polarization, the the kinds of um, uh, the the. Uh, the, you know the, these kind of deep social problems that people now tend to heap blame on uh, the addiction, maybe uh, 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 to the to the internet and social media specifically. Do you see that already starting to form, or is there something about the structure of these networks that you know that that, that maybe bypasses some of these some of these big challenges?
1: Yeah. Well, of course, the s- sheer scale of participation in online systems, like the broader Facebook e- ecosystem today, the sheer scale just dwarfs the kinds of things that we're talking about. Um, and that changed the social dynamic. Despite that giant difference in scale, much of the agenda that we're concerned about, privacy, surveillance, trolling, misinformation, these were top of mind for people who were running networks in the 1980s as well. Um, there was a lot of discussion about like what it meant to make a family-friendly system or a versus a system with different rules and how to, what kind of rulemaking processes should you go through. And the group of people I think who exemplify that are the system operators or sysops. And sysops exist on many different kinds of systems, like there were sysops in the chat rooms of Minitel. But I'm talking about a more narrow meaning of that, which would be around the dial-up bulletin boards in North America. And that person is kind of unique historically because they're responsible for the technology. Like they have to keep the power on and the machine running and tinker with the software and things like that. But they also pay the bills and they set the rules. So if two users are having a huge fight, it's kind of expected that the sysop will step in and stop it. Or they're, they're kind of the one who is the enforcer. And their enforcement is partly absolute because at the end of the day, they can just turn off the computer and the whole thing vanishes into the ether. Um but many of them took on that responsibility and began to talk to one another about what that meant. So there's like humorous articles, but there's a lot of serious tips and, and advice from an experienced sysop to a junior sysop about what you ought to do. And I think that we're missing the sysop in our social media experiences today. And We kind of have these big gaps between everyday people using platforms like Instagram and then these like large, largely opaque uh, systems of moderation, which may be run in part automatically by software. They may be run by outside contractors. We know that at Google and other places, sometimes those outside contractors are very poorly paid or poorly treated relative to the stereotype of the like cushy tech industry job. Uh, where's the Sysop who is closer to the ground, who has accountability, who like identifies personally with the needs and demands of the people who are using the system day in and day out? We don't see it as much as we did most clearly in those 1980s contexts.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a, a human touch that I think these, these companies seem uh, eager to find their way around to, to automate uh, out of existence. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Uh, stick with us and we'll be back. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGE Radio. We're speaking today with Kevin Driscoll at the University of Virginia, uh, exploring what the earliest social media looked like. Kevin, we've we've been talking about like BBSs, um, these bulletin board systems, and and uh, Minitel, the the early kind of proto internet in in France. Um, you know, I, I know you're also a tinkerer, and uh, you know your website is full of these amazing tinkerings and, and, and things you've found and, and, um, uh, and also some of your research involves that kind of computational work. I wonder, have you in looking at these systems ever felt tempted to, uh, spin up an app that is built, uh, on some of the lessons that you've seen in these early systems. If you were to build uh, a new social media network on the basis of the lessons of the 1970s and eighties, um, what would it look like? That's a great question, and
1: yeah, tink, the soft the software is available, and there are many bulletin board systems still running on the internet today. And you can search for Telnet BBS, and you'll find uh, systems and instructions on how to access them. So you can see and feel uh, what they looked like. But going back is not the answer. We I, I look to this history partly because I'm looking for alternatives and paths not taken that can stimulate our creativity about thinking our way out of the present into a few inter- an internet after platforms, like an internet after Facebook dominating so much of the social environment. One part of it is it may not be possible to have giant centralized platforms that serve bi- literal billions of people. I think a lot of bulletin board systems found that af- as they grew, there was a need to add more sysops or create separate areas within them to have different rules and things like that, that you could learn how to navigate your way through those spaces. And we talked about the like financial reasons that people stayed local, but there was also really good social reasons to stay local too, which is many of these bulletin board systems weren't online-only spaces, they were extensions, whether it was of a club or some other pre-existing activity Even the informal bulletin boards, the SysOps would sponsor a pizza party or get together at a bar or something like that. So the people you're chatting with, they might be people you met online, but they were real people that you had these kinds of interactions with. Or you might just imagine them as like the person behind you in line at the grocery store. And they aren't like faceless kinds of NPCs the way that people kind of like deride a lot of the strangers they interact with online today. So I think being really cautious and thinking about scale is an important part of this you know futures that we might have and i think what's notable is many of us already occupy areas of online life that look like these community oriented systems it might be a big group chat with old friends it could be a slack channel within your job or something like that and that those spaces start to feel more welcoming more warm more, more like responsive places that you can get some kinds of like uh, the things that we look for in community. And they are not necessarily connected to these other big platforms. So one of the things I think about a lot about the 1980s, whether it's in Minitel or in the case of the United States, is there was a public infrastructure that enabled private groups of people to build the systems and tinker with the rules of those systems. In the U S it was just the telephone network, the bell system, this hugely reliable network that could carry data from one person's home to another. In France, it was Teletel, this infrastructure behind Minitel. So what would that look like? I think we need some kind of public infrastructure to enable these kinds of systems. And it might not be a public infrastructure that can handle 4K video and Marvel movies and things like that, but we never asked the internet to also be TV, film, and every other medium. So it might be the case that we have multiple internets in the future that serve different needs as well
0: i think that's a really interesting point that already in a sense those apps uh you know that i asked you about are being made like a lot of the spaces that are starting to be on the on the ascent right now are the ones that are smaller and more intimate um you mentioned slack you know slack even has those those hashtag based channels you know that reminds me of the old irc uh networks from you know the early 90s um, these, these, these old chat spaces very much kind of of the same culture that then they're, even their symbols get imported into the new corporate systems. And, um, and, and you see people moving toward these kind of smaller spaces, uh, uh, toward group chats as opposed to the big news feed. Um, and, and, and that may be a, um, you know, a kind of a, a re-recognition of, of the importance of that, of that intimacy. Um, you know, it it does seem to have a kind of uh, uh, have have been rediscovered by a commercial world that is also trying to like somehow have scale, but also that that closeness.
1: I haven't given up on the possibility that there are really positive things to happen from these trans local spaces that we create online. We've seen how they go wrong, but we've also seen them go right in lots of ways that are mundane, like seeing just some beautiful image or a hilarious video that you wouldn't have seen otherwise, and in very profound ways. Some of the most important progressive social movements of recent years have found ways to take advantage of these systems with their very low barriers to entry and their relatively easy to use interfaces. And so I'm certainly not nostalgic for like the text-only, very slow, expensive networks that came before. Rather, how can we find some of the Transparency, accountability, and as you said, intimacy of those earlier networks within all of the technical advantages that we have on the broadband mobile internet today.
0: I mean, one thing that I think those social movements have really struggled with, and my my work on on them is is the um, is that kind of glue, that persistence, that ability to be in a community on the long term. You know, they can spread a message all over the world really quickly, but then six months later. Um, it's hard for them to find, you know, it's hard for people to find each other again. It's hard to keep going in the moments where your message isn't spreading wildly. Um, and these kinds of of closer networks, you know, maybe can do that. I, I mean, another kind of um, sometimes cringy case of of this that I kept thinking of while reading your book is is the crypto world right now, right? Which is a world which notoriously you know, has not really found a use case in the mainstream economy, you know, yet is full of people who um, think it's the future and are banking on it. And there's all kinds of money flowing through it. But it is this thing, uh, you know, that Christopher Kelty, the anthropologist of open source calls a recursive public, you know, it's, it's a a, a network of people whose subject is their own network. Um, and uh, And, and it's just constantly kind of self-referential in its culture and you know even in its practices and its technology it's like you can't use it except to do crypto you can't use crypto except to do more crypto Um, and it seems like something kind of similar to the moment you know of the bbs's where it's like you can really only use the bbs to talk to other people who are interested in computers you know and maybe there are a few other edge cases you know where, where where certain communities find are able to find each other in new ways. But uh, uh, the vast majority of it is this kind of self-referentiality. You know, how do you think about the, do we need those phases, um, of these kind of self-referential obsessives, um, building new technology, um, is this the way it should be, uh, or, you know, or, or is there a way out of it where, you know, technology begins, you know, with people who have quote unquote, more real needs. This is a great question
1: broadly in the history of communication technology. I think the early bulletin board systems, as I mentioned, it's like you build it because you can build it. It's a really, it's a really like satisfying, challenging technological project. I think uh, early amateur radio operators went through a similar period where it was about getting the antenna and the transmitter working, and then you connect, and all you say is like, how's my signal? <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> you know, there's like the content is is not that profound, but then other groups of people find uses for it or social conditions change such that that amateur radio transmitter becomes a lifeline in a moment of like climate collapse. Uh, I think something similar happened around some of the queer communities who adopted bulletin board systems. So the blockchain web three sphere of activity is productive of a lot of discussions of the future that are pretty wide ranging. And some of those people, I think, are readers of my work and yours who are looking for examples of ways the internet could be organized differently because they are coming to it from uh, you know, in a wave of people coming online in the last 10 or 15 years who had no firsthand experience of another internet, no AOL, no bulletin board systems, or Minitel, or anything like that. And so learning that, that things worked differently, whether or not that's your model, it's bolsters the possibility and like opens the the window to think more broadly about what's possible for the future. I think a lot about Lana Swartz's papers about blockchain dreams. It's like you come together because you have this shared interest in crypto. But once you're together, you can talk about everything under the sun. And so if it's a convening technology, if you will, that like brings people in, into community with one another, then there's potential for positive change there. Obviously, there's also potential for like capture and expropriation and financialization of everything into the dirt which doesn't sound particularly appealing to me but i'm drawn to it for the same reason because there is some openness and like interest in talking about what other futures lay before us
0: yeah it's 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 such a um you know there, there there's this character of the early adopter in kind of tech lore right the the person who's willing to tolerate these systems um th- you know that don't quite work yet whether they're early internet uh early networking or um or you know weird crypto wallets where if you misplace your private key you lose your millions of dollars or whatever and it you know has become so attached to like financial access and privilege and you know the potential of tremendous so-called upside um but it also is this kind of is this kind of exclusion and and um And I, you know, I keep wondering and and looking at as these, as this moment happens again and again of this, of the early adopters and whatever the latest fad is, you know, is there a way around this cycle? Is there a way to, to think about this cycle, do this cycle differently of bringing new technology in that is, you know, that's more equitable. Um, And I wonder, you know, whether Related to that question or that that issue or or not, if there are other networks that you think we should be looking at, um, other kind of, um, you know, yeah, my my colleague Lori Emerson here at, at CU Boulder just calls them other networks um, mm-hmm. in our history, right? That that point to alternative futures that that you know we should look back to and study more. That that you've been tinkering around, but do you have? Are, are, are you planning new projects along these lines too uh, around networks that we have that have lessons that we need to be hearing?
1: First, I would say for listeners who are enjoying the conversation, the Media Archaeology Lab is a tremendous resource, a unique resource, really, that we don't find in other places that is. I find incredibly stimulating, even as someone who participates remotely and seeing the materials that they make available.
0: And that absolutely—that's that's here in uh, here in Boulder. If you're in town, if you're in the area, please uh, come by check out the media archaeology lab that Laurie Emerson, uh, who I just mentioned, leads. Uh, it's a wonderful place where you can use uh, old machines, uh, make art on them. Build on them, play around with them, play games. Uh, It's it's it is a a wonderful resource.
1: Yeah. So I, you know, on the tinkering side, I'm interested in networks that don't assume we would have maximum bandwidth 24 hours a day. That imagine an internet that is intermittent or that adjusts. So an internet that maybe adjusts according to other conditions, availability of power, things like that. And that's part of the you know ham radio operator in me who thinks about like how can we do the most with the least and like really build networks with accessible technology. Um, but the other thing I'm especially interested in, and I think talking to readers of the book has been really inspiring in this sense, is that there are many networks that have existed and will continue to exist into, into the future for decades even. And they are out of the light that shines through the like Silicon Valley venture capital machine they exist for other purposes It could be a listserv at a university or like a could be um, you know a sorority Facebook group or something that just the password gets handed off every year to a new group of people and there's something about durability and longevity and time that we don't appreciate often because of the like rah-rah excitement about the the newest thing that's going to displace the older thing I want to know what lingers and so, yeah, I'm really interested in, in systems that survive periods of change. And it's a reminder because the intense attention to like wealth that goes on around the internet today is, is there in part because there have been moments where people became extremely wealthy, but most of those moments were in the last 25 years. And that's why looking at earlier networks is so important because people then didn't imagine themselves as a top, a dot-com millionaire. There was no dot-com millionaire. Often building systems or networks was to serve immediate need, personal or, or social. And the idea of monetizing it was like, you know, it could be appealing, but there were no models. There was no like Time Magazine cover with the dot-com millionaire on it for you to model yourself after. Once that comes to pass, it carries such cultural force. It's hard to like have it exist. It, it's hard to remove it from your imagination. And so I don't know the answer to it, but that's part of what's so interesting to look at kind of pre.com online communities.
0: Thank you so much, Kevin. Uh, uh, Really appreciated having you on the show.
1: Thanks so much. It was really cool to be on here.
0: You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Kevin Driscoll about what the earliest social media was like. Find out more, uh, in his new book, The Modem World, A Prehistory of Social Media from Yale University Press. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. Looks like new is a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at colorado.edu lab slash If you've liked what you heard, I hope you'll consider leaving a review um, wherever you get your podcasts and we'd love to hear from you with comments and guest ideas. You can reach me at medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us again next month.